Thanks everyone for being here. We are uh, continuing and welcome back as we keep moving forward on our series in equipping hour on respectable sins. And of course, uh, respectable here, as we've kept saying, is not a true description of any sin from God's perspective, but rather it's a description of kind of functionally how we view these sins, how we treat these sins, both in society as a whole, but maybe more specific and more of our interest is even as the people of God, as Christians. These are sins that we tend to see as not a big deal, uh, sins that we tend to overlook, which in fact are a problem and are a big deal. Any sin is, and so we want to be letting the Lord search us with these things. So let me lead us in prayer to start, and we'll get going from there. Our God, we thank you for just the gift of belonging to Christ and the gift of belonging to his people, the church. And even the expression that we give to that unity and that belonging by gathering together to worship you as a people. Thank you for the privilege that we get to share in that today. And we thank you for your word and how Christ has come revealing your character to us most fully and uh, paying for our sins with his blood on the cross and rising to new life. And all these things are meant to save us and to train us in righteousness. And your word is filled with truth and wisdom and convicting words and instructive words and encouraging words meant to um, give us the joy of Christ-likeness. And so we pray that we would have a heart that's ready to hear from you, that your spirit would work in me as a speaker and all of us as hearers to be sensitive to what your word is teaching and to let you keep shaping us into the likeness of Christ so that we can have joy in obeying you and glorifying you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, uh, this whole study of respectable sins, we just want to be beating this drum over and over that when we study sin as Christians, we have to build this on the foundation of the gospel, uh, the good news of how Jesus came as God in the flesh, uh, bringing near the kingdom of God and living a righteous life under the law of God. He died on the cross in our place for our sin under God's righteous judgment And he rose to life again on the third day. And he promises eternal life and forgiveness to all sinners who turn to him in faith. That's the good news. That's the gospel that really everyone has to believe to be saved. And that's what makes us Christians is that we have trusted Jesus and received that message. And uh, this is the good news of how God has freed us from the penalty of our sins in Christ. And as a result of being rescued from the penalty of sin... We also have these new resources in Christ to fight the power of sin. So we have his Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have the new birth. We're made new, um, new creatures in Christ so that we can start being transformed into his likeness. So as Christians, when we approach the topic of our sin, we ought to approach this expecting for God's word to sting us with conviction. And it, it does that. It's supposed to do that. But even in doing that, this is all backed sort of by the safety net of of God's forgiving and transforming grace in Christ. We don't merely come and hear about how bad we are. There's this underlying foundation of all of our sin has been taken care of in the gospel of Christ. In fact, it's kind of paradoxical but very true that it's only those who are participating in God's love in Christ in the gospel, only those people who can really look square at our sins and deal with them appropriately, who can really look at our sins like, like straight on and see how bad they are. I think of, and we read this when we do our prayer of confession sometimes, Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Just really interesting to meditate on that forgiveness is this foundation. The gospel is this foundation on which we then can learn to actually see the Lord as he is and fear him as we ought to. And then... Um, kind of implied is to see our sin as we ought to to really we can almost say with you there is forgiveness that we may understand our sin as we ought to because that that debt has been fully paid so um, the power that's at work to not only forgive our sins but to replace that sin with righteous and holy patterns of life this is ours in the gospel and it comes not from us but from god's spirit indwelling us so we want to say, we're studying sin in this, in this series. We're being real about sin. It's actually the gospel, the, the, the salvation we have by grace in Christ, that 
equips us to be real about sin and 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 that tells us like it's all been paid for so let's be honest about what it is and get to work fighting it um so i just want to lay that foundation once again and remind us of the context in which we we fight sin and identify and confess sin. um any thoughts or questions about that just that gospel foundation and how it equips us to address our sin Okay, um, moving on to what we're going to talk about in today's topics. Uh, we have two today, and they are, uh, first of all, the sin of judgmentalism, and secondly, uh, all the various kinds of sins with our speech, our words. And um, I can guarantee that one or both of these topics will be relevant to every single one of us. Um, when it comes to judgmentalism, this is a particularly, you know, again, we're not just studying sin, we're studying respectable sins, sins that fly under the radar, sins we may not notice in ourselves or may not think are a very big deal if we notice them. Judgmentalism, by definition, involves assuming that our own judgments are true. Um, so it can really hide behind a mask of sort of apparent righteousness, self-righteousness. Um, so even seemingly upright Christians are vulnerable to exhibiting undetected, stealthy judgmentalism in our hearts so that's something that we ought to be oh maybe this just come in assuming maybe this is a problem for me maybe this is happening in my heart asking the holy spirit to search us and then when it comes to the tongue uh our author by the way this is based the series based on the book respectable sins by jerry bridges and bridges points out that some of these sins of the tongue are among the first that come to mind when you hear the topic of respectable sins uh, and this may be the case for you when you heard about this series or you hear about this topic, uh, immediately you start thinking of some very familiar sins like gossip. Like, oh, yeah, you know, gossip is just too, it's something we're too acclimated to. It's too familiar. Um, some of these sins of maybe white lies. I think that came up earlier in the course. Things that we call white lies that seem like small and insignificant deceptions. But sins of the tongue are, um, are there, there are many, and they're very easy to fall into. So we're going to study that as well. But once again, we're studying these things in the confidence and assurance that, as, uh, as we hear in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in us uh, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is working to sanctify us, again, on the foundation of the gospel. We've been saved by grace. And the, the hopeful kind of forward-looking um, joy that, as Jesus says in John 15, verse 2, every branch in me, every disciple united to me in faith, who does bear fruit... The father, the vine dresser, prunes that it may do what? Bear more fruit. So this pruning, pruning is cutting. Pruning is cutting away things that shouldn't be there that inhibit fruitfulness, which means um, being more like Christ and, and producing love and truth and these things that disciples produce. So uh, the, the joy, the joy, the, the joy that, that like pulls us along in this study of sin is we want to bear more fruit. We want the joy of being more like Jesus as we're united to him. So Paul... When you're talking, when he's talking about cutting away, mm -hmm. is, he, is he is is respectable sins among stuff like that that he's cutting away? I would say, yeah. What, when Jesus says he cuts away a respectable sins, what he's cutting away? I would say any sin. Um, this idea of pruning is just this. Is, it's a it's a cleansing removal, right? And so I, I would just say any any sin that stands in the way of fruitfulness for Christ. This is disciples, yeah. And certainly these are some of those. So um, let's, let's get going, talk about these things. Uh, the first one is judgmentalism. And uh, kind of the, the core idea, we're going to look at two different varieties of judgmentalism. The core idea of this problem of judgmentalism is passing unrighteous judgment. Um, so would some of you like to read John 7.24? Jesus is talking to people who are challenging him um, when he's, he's speaking in Jerusalem. And they're, they're challenging him, saying, who are you that you would do these things and say these things? Yeah, John, will you read John seven twenty four? <coughs> do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Yeah, so Jesus is, is warning about the danger of judging by appearances, which are not true to the substance of the matter. It says judge with right judgment. And implied there is judge me according to how you should and not based on your own criteria. So unrighteous judgment is really the idea here behind judgmentalism. And that unrighteous judgment can occur in two ways we're going to look at. The first is 
uh, unrighteous judgment in substance. And then secondly, judgment that's unrighteous in its manner. Okay? So first we have judgment that's unrighteous in its substance or content. The basis on which we are judging someone. And this is when we um, elevate our personal preferences to a dogmatic position as though it were truth. As though it were God's perspective. Um, So somebody is doing something that we think they shouldn't do. And we see that and we think, you shouldn't do that. That's not, that's not good. That's not appropriate. And then we look down on them for it. We, we pass judgment against them for it. And the real key place you see this dealt with in Scripture is Romans chapter 14. I would actually invite you to turn there. We're going to look at some length at Romans 14. Um, where Paul addresses this very issue in the church. And um, can I have a reader who can read 14 verses 1 to 4 and another who can read verses 10 to 12 right after that? So Joshua 1 to 4 and then Matt Boyd 10 to 12. And really, honestly, the whole chapter is just kind of hitting this stuff right on. But we want to be somewhat selective for time. So go ahead when you get there. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats must not view the one who does not eat with contempt. And the one who does not eat must not judge the one who eats, for God accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Thank you. Nanette. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we, all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Thank you. So the issues, the particular kind of presenting issues that Paul is addressing here, in verses 1 to 4 you can tell it has to do with eating, kind of questions of what are we allowed to eat, and this has to do with uh, various different, different uh, views people have on what they're supposed to eat as Christians. Um, I think there's in the background certain, um, you see, read about this in 1 Corinthians, certain meat, uh, meat that has sort of uh, a tie-in with pagan worship, and there's this question of are we supposed to eat this. Um, and then if you, the part we didn't read in verse 5 also tells us that there's also a dispute over certain like Jewish holy days. Like do we celebrate Jewish holy days as Christians? And... Um, so these are the issues where you have different views among Christians in the church. And um, this, what's going on, as we heard about in the, the text we read, what's going on with this person is he's um, arrogating to himself the role of God. He is, uh, the, the person who's judging in this way is assuming God's position as the judge of the other person. And this is, you can tell, like, based on verse 4, this is what Paul's analysis is. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So the, the, the implied critique here is you're acting like you're his master. And you're acting like he owes it an account to you for what he does. And that's really the problem here. I'm treating my brother as though he's accountable ultimately to me and not to God. Um, what, what, so we, we hear about in Romans 14. Of course, this is just uh, relative to the historical situation in Rome. Uh, and, and some of these especially with different different convictions coming out of Judaism and the Mosaic Law, so that there was a lot of uh, tricky stuff they had to walk through in the early generations of the church. What are some issues where we might have to think through this way as uh, today in our church? What are some issues where we're going to have believers with different convictions where we have to maybe apply this, this caution against judging one another for coming to the other, the other side from me? What are some ideas? Yeah, Randy. Okay, so we might have, uh, like Seventh-day Adventists, those who worship on Saturday, okay? Any other things? Yeah, Matt, well, uh, I have a, so just a comment. And yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, one, like, whether or not to have tattoos. Okay. Like, one of those issues. Tattoos, you know, yeah. Pass judgment on someone. But the question is, what do, you, what do you mean by the term judgment? Like, are we just putting ourselves higher above them, or are we actually making a declaration that they're in sin? Yeah, I, I, it seems to me like, based on, um, yeah, it's, I think the latter. I don't think it's necessary. Well, I think it's both, right? I, I guess I would say, 
Is it, is, so the question is, is it that I'm putting myself over him or is it that I'm concluding that he's sinning? Um, it's probably both. It's probably the former is sort of the underlying reason for the latter, right? Like I'm, I'm concluding this brother is sinning. Well, what, what's going on, the process that's led to that is that I've sort of assumed this godlike position where I'm deciding what he's allowed to do. So yeah, it's both. I guess sometimes we might take a godlike position toward others, but we agree with what they're doing, so we, <laughs> so we don't, you know, we're, we're, we, we still maybe view ourselves that way, but we're not disapproving of what they do. But it kind of shows up when they make different choices. And we're like, hey, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any tattoos, and I don't judge you for having Okay, thank you. Because I was wondering, Matt, when you, no, I just, no. Tattoos, yeah, tattoos are great. Yeah, there are going to be different convictions on that, different views. Yeah. Done. Minor versus major infractions. Yeah. I would say we're in a little bit of a different category where um, it's not so much things that are clearly sin. Yeah. Part of the trick is that one person may kind of feel that it is, but um, which is it can be kind of ambiguous and difficult with some of these things. But um, things that aren't really clear in Scripture, or there's there's legitimate view for there's legitimate room to differ in, in where we land on whether it's even sin at all. Yeah. Yeah, Sherry? What about women wearing makeup? Yeah, there could be, yeah, women wearing makeup or various sort of appearance issues. Uh, yeah, Christina? Well, could it, is it bigger, like, tertiary issues, like, you know, like, women being ordained? Mm-hmm. So, women being ordained, yeah. And we're going to deal a little bit later with doctrinal judgmentalism, but there could be some, yeah, there could be doctrinal differences where it's, yeah, yeah. That, that, that kind of thing could fit into this category. There's also judgment on how high, how high something rates, right? Is this a primary or is this like a, you know, more of like a tertiary? There's kind of different degrees of how important is this doctrinal issue. Um, there could be media choices. There could be certain things that your brother or sister watches on TV that you're like, how could any Christian ever watch that? <laughs> and uh, and uh, they could see your refusal to watch that and go, are you kidding me? Like, so this is the kind. And it's interesting that in, in Romans fourteen, he says in verse three, "Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains." And that can happen. The one who feels at liberty to do something and maybe is right about that can look at the other person who's the other person who's going who's judging them and going, "How dare you use that?" And think that's a liberty. And then you can despise and be like, "Man, that guy doesn't even understand the, the freedom we have in Christ." It's so sad, you know. What a, what a petty soul he is, right? And then the, the judging one is judging is kind of thinking that he's in a superior position. Let not the one who judges, uh, let, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So the one who feels free to do something is, is tending to despise the judger, and the judger is tending to, to uh, judge the one who does feel they have the liberty. So, um, yeah, alcohol might be one of these categories as well. For some of us, how we educate our children, educational choices for kids. Um, it's really important that we have this category in our minds. There are certain things that biblically are very clear black and white, and we can't, we can't negotiate on them. We ought not to. And there are some things that don't matter at all, that literally don't matter at all. And there's things in between that. And that's a little bit uncomfortable for us. There's things that maybe there's a wisdom argument. A lot of these issues we're talking about, there are wisdom arguments that might incline you one way or another. But we have to be careful not to not to um, uh, confuse that for, this is clearly sin. My brother is in sin because he came to a different conclusion than me. Um, and that's, that's a hard place to be. Uh, but what it exposes, again, is that, that, that heart of putting myself in God's place to, to uh, judge my brother. So um, as we've gone through this series, we've kind of kept saying that, that we want to keep bringing back all sins to this one, what's kind of the one core sin that, that Bridges has argued is sort of the, the root from which all the others are coming. We want to understand every sin in relation to this one sort of root issue. What is that? What is that? Ungodliness. Pride is very important. Pride, and he says pride is basically a very direct offshoot from ungodliness, and so they together are sort of the root of everything. But the, he, he says like ungodliness, essentially godlessness, just a godless way of being and, and thinking and viewing the world and our lives. So um, I, I think it's just a very good insight that 
we never understand a sin truly, ultimately, unless we can reference it to God himself, right? It's not just horizontal, what I'm doing wrong to my brother, but we want to be godly in our assessment of the sin, so we always want to bring God in and ask the question, what's going wrong with regard to me and God in this sin? If I'm, if I'm, so I'll ask you, you all that. What's the core problem relative to God if I'm, if I'm exhibiting this kind of judgmentalism? Yeah, it might be a simple piece of ignorance. Could be ignorance? Yeah, just not knowing a proper response in right. circumstances where our consciences are free right. or something, um, and we, we uh, project that onto someone else. Yeah, there could be, it could be ignorance, and then uh, there could be opportunity to grow from that and be, be teachable. And that's, you know, that's a good point, too, that I want to I say is we have these warnings not to judge each other. And that's very important. But I also say that doesn't mean not to talk about this stuff. And there can be a, a place, absolutely, actually a very helpful place when we're in love with one another where we can have frank conversations about like, hey, I have some concerns about X. Um, it's just generally good to en- approach these conversations with a teachable spirit. Um, there are some things that are very, very clear biblically and still should go humbly, but maybe be a little bit more um, dogmatic about certain things that are very clearly sin, but approaching a brother or sister that seems to be making what seem to us poor, unwise choices potentially sinful, and just maybe start a conversation about, here's what I see, here's what, what I, maybe how I think biblically about this, how do you think about this biblically? And maybe they are thinking of some things that you, they know some things biblically you haven't considered, etc. So um, yeah, that's just a good reminder too. It could be ignorance, which would, it, would it remind us before God and one another to have a heart of humility and teachability as we approach these things. Well, yeah, Blake, and then Annalie. Um, I think it's good to approach the, the question of, in our minds or in conversation, whether something is sinful or not with the attitude of going to the Lord or another person with it's, like you said, a teachable spirit. Because, mm-hmm. like, whether it be judgmentalism or covetousness or anger or whatever the sin is, you know, whatever respectable sin it is, um, we should plan on going to the Lord in prayer with the attitude of being humble and having a teachable spirit. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't, if we commit a sin deliberately and we're not asking God or another person about it, then that's when we're really sinning. I think that judgmentalism, you know, like someone said, it can be a simple ignorance thing, but if we're not going to the Lord and asking for his guidance, then we're probably in trouble. Yeah, you're right. Not going to the Lord asking for guidance with a teachable spirit and going to one another with a, um, a teachable spirit what could be and should be a, I have some concerns, let's think together about this, turns into you're, you're in sin and you're wrong when it doesn't have to necessarily. Uh, yeah, so Paul's, you know, Paul would point the finger on, like, what's the real heart of this issue with regard to God? Oh, I'm sorry, Annalie. <laughs> I promise you an opportunity to speak. You have the floor. It's okay. I think it's, you're going exactly where I was thinking as well. Um, kind of just dovetailing off of those two. Like we were saying, the root being of godliness and not just not considering God's word and mm-hmm. what He has declared and bringing that into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Just saying, like, I think this, I think that, or, and not having the foundation in the word of God. Yeah, so some of this can be like, Matt, the ignorance itself can be symptomatic of our thinking being more rooted in our own opinions rather than God's word. Which, I mean, there's a natural progression of growth. We're all learning what's in the word and what it means. But, yeah, there can be a lot of just very strong opinions that we adopt over the course of our lives for whatever reasons that are ultimately just what seems right to us. And so that's part of the teachability of realizing, like, you know, I should always be willing to subject, always would be willing to reform my own views and subject them to the critique of, of Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, Randy. What uh, Blake shared, would that be removing the plank from your own eye? Yeah, so judgmentalism, Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 7, uh, f- verses 1 to 5, and that's what Jesus says. You're trying to go and approach your brother who has a speck in his eye. You have a plank in your own eye. So you have, and Bridges actually, his interpretation of that is that plank is judgmentalism, which I thought was very interesting. Um, 
I'm not sure if it's limited to that, but it is an interesting idea that it's the very attitude with which you're approaching that's um, that, that's that's overly critical and assuming a godlike position. That's inhibiting you from seeing the situation rightly and helping your brother. So yeah, that that's that's important. It kind of bleeds into the the manner of our judgment, which we're going to talk about too. But um, Paul, I mean, one of Paul's. So yeah, like a heart that is willing to submit to the word of God over our own opinions. Absolutely. And verse 4 again, it's before his own master that he stands or falls. You are judging the servant of another. You're acting like this person belongs to you and not to God. You're acting like you're God. It's really a self-deifying thing that we do when we make ourselves a judge of whether someone else is in sin or not. And so the godly solution that this problem, this analysis of the problem implies what godly solution is that we acknowledge the Lord's, Christ's lordship over this person. And I look at my brother who's doing, making a choice with regard to media choices or a tattoo or whatever it is that I, I don't like and I think, I don't, I don't think a Christian should do that. And I first, the very fundamental bedrock thing I have to do is tell myself, this person belongs to Jesus Christ, not to me. And I do owe him, you know, I'm his brother. I owe him a, a, a bond of love and I, I owe him, you know, potentially there could be things to... Again, it doesn't mean we don't have conversations and don't try to help each other grow. Or if we see sin, we do owe each other accountability. But that's all. The, the fundamentally, the issue, bedrock and all of it, is this person belongs to Jesus. And so do I. And so that's going to really color the way that I view what they're doing. Um, and so that's, that's really Paul's analysis of the problem. And his, his solution, how we put off that self-kind of arrogating attitude and, and instead acknowledge Christ's lordship. There's a lot of different ways that can look. He talks in verses 13 and 19 about what to do, and we won't read it for the sake of time. But for instance, one, I love verse 19 as sort of a, a really helpful blanket exhortation in this. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Just have an attitude in the church as I want to bring about what makes for the good of my brother who belongs to Christ and is accountable to Christ rather than just... Um, um, nitpicking about what, what I don't like about his behavior, um, but to really think about what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Um, and just regarding, he says, like, your brother is going to stand before the judgment seat of God, so um, that should, we should be encouraging each other. We should be helping each other um, and just trusting the Lord to, to be the judge. Um, and yeah, so prioritizing love over being right, that would, that would be a, a, an implication here where he says, um, verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So there's just this impulse of love that says, I want to serve, I want to help each other. Um, even again, if there have to be conversations where you're working these things out, etc. Um, now let me ask you this. Is it always, are we, are we always being sinfully judgmental when we express disapproval about something that someone else is doing? Is that always sinfully judgmental? No. Okay, when is it not sinfully judgmental? So we're just being told, don't, be, don't put yourself in a godlike position and turn yourself into the judge. That's judgmentalism. Well, when and how is it appropriate to express disapproval over what someone else is doing? Yeah, Sherry. Well, if the person is in sin and you love them, um, to help bring them back to the right standing with God rather than condemnation Mm -hmm. is a loving thing. So to not say anything to your brother or sister that's going down a wrong road is not a loving Mm -hmm. thing. And some people will say, well, you're just being judgmental. No, I'm being loving. So the motive, yeah, the motive is huge, right? Is the motive just, I'm annoyed at your behavior and I, I want you to knock it off? Or is it like, I'm concerned for your good and I see this, what you're doing, uh, and you said sin. Now you're talking, I think, to kind of draw out more implicate, like what you're talking, what you're saying is true when their things are truly sinful and, they're, and, and that means it's harmful for them and, and dishonoring to God. And then there should be an impulse of love. This is, I want to rescue. Um, I'm not... I'm not trying to look down upon you. I want to rescue you. I want to be a means of Christ rescuing. Yeah, and, and, and that, and then what Annalise said, I think is very helpful too with this regard to really a big thing is going to be 
is our assessment of what's going wrong clear according to God's word? It's very different to... I, God tells us in his word, we should call darkness, darkness. We should call light, light. Um, Ephesians 5, we won't turn there. Ephesians 5, 5 to 12 talks about that, that, that basically it assumes all throughout. Christians ought to know things that are darkness and things that are light and have nothing to do with things that are darkness. Um, the, the call not to judge, this is, this is one of the commandments, probably the world's favorite commandment from Christ. Judge not that you be not judged, right? That's, <laughs> the world loves that one. They love, they love um, using it as a deflective shield, right, against any arrows of conviction and what they often mean is jesus is saying nobody can say say boo about any, what anyone else is doing um but god's word is clear all throughout no that's not what it's saying it's but the issue is are we representing god's true judgment as revealed in scripture there's a, a humble posture that takes what god clearly says about a situation and says to another on the basis of god's authority and not mine this is sin this is bad for you this is dishonoring to God. This incurs God's judgment. That's very different than me deciding on the basis of my own authority and preferences. No, that Christian shouldn't do that. So that, it, really, it really calls us to make sure we're, we're even asking ourselves a question of on whose authority do I assess this to be sin? Is it on God's authority or my own authority? And like you said, Sherry, then the question becomes, what's the intent and motive behind me addressing this in the person's life? Is it that I just, I'm annoyed at what they're doing, or I, 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 I think they're inferior, or is it like, no, I really, I really see this as, on the basis of God's word, I see what you're doing is dangerous and not good for your soul, and, and, and in love, as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, I want to help you in that. Um, so that, 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 that humility that discerns uh, based on the, the authority of God's word, whether this is right or wrong, that's crucial for avoiding the sin of judgmentalism. Yeah, Matt. context of you being the victim of that particular sin mm. to respond with this is not good because God says so, not mm-hmm. because I say so, even mm-hmm. when it is clearly a sin that, mm-hmm. I've been, you know, that I've been victimized by, so to speak but to have a, have a disposition of saying, you know when I've sinned against someone and they come to me, it's, I'm concerned for your soul before God, not because you've just offended me Yeah, but to have that heart is you know, Lord help so, so you can, um, you mean if you're the one who sinned, it can be easy to suspect the motives of the person. If I've sinned against, okay, yeah, to go to that person with a, this is concerning because God said. Oh yeah, not just you hurt, you hurt my feelings, and but so I'm concerned about. Yeah, 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 God. yeah. To start there. Yeah. Lord help. Yeah, that's true. Even if we've been hurt by someone's sin, to be more concerned about where, where they are, their their the health of their standing with God and their relationship with the Lord. Versus just, I've been offended. And, and yeah, Christina? Just tag on to that. Like, I think that's where I struggle the most with judgmentalism is when I've been personally offended or I'm picking up somebody else's offense. Somebody mm-hmm. else has been hurt by somebody and, or I've been hurt by somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm like offended, mm-hmm. either on my behalf or somebody else's. Yeah. But getting past that anger or hurt pain mm-hmm. to that humility of like, well, my sin is offensive to God yeah. too, except for through. Right. Jesus Christ, and that's what we want for this person is that they're that this sin be washed in blood. Yeah, so there can be a real temptation to be responding in, in kind of vengeance or just responding like mostly out of hurt versus just being doing doing what we're doing in love and, and wanting that person to have joy in Christ and in the truth. Yeah. So that's um, that is judgment that's sinful in unrighteous in content and substance and then the other variety is judgment that's unrighteous in its manner that means you know there are times when we are being biblical and right in our judgment of something that's wrong or sinful but then the way that we hold that view the way that it inclines us to view that person becomes an issue of sin um Maybe we see somebody truly sinning or, or being ignorant about something that it, the Bible deals with or having a doctrinal error, area of error. And we, we can hold this attitude of self-righteousness and superiority against that person. Um, are there any sins, any kinds of sin, either just in anyone everywhere you see it or in a particular person that really irks you, that has a kind of a high potential to really bug you? And then you, t- when you see, as soon as you see someone doing that, you're like, okay, I see what kind of person you are. 
I get it. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing of, oh, I, oh, I get it. I, I know all I need to know about you. Um, you put them in a certain category of, beep, you, you peg them as less than you in one way or another, less than you. Um, and you, you start having critical thoughts of this person as a whole. And one area, someone brought up doctrine. And one area Bridges brings up where this is really uh, relevant is, is doctrinal judgmentalism against those who are in error. And again, we can even, we, we're talking even about people who are truly wrong. Um, areas where we disagree that we, we do believe the Bible is clear on. And um, some of these are actually important areas. It doesn't, we don't have to say these are only trivial and unimportant areas. But imagine you and I meet another Christian who we soon discover has starkly different views than, than I do in some area of doctrine. Um, so it could be like Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, if these terms don't mean anything to you, don't worry, but just some examples. Covenantalism versus dispensationalism. Continuation of the miraculous spiritual gifts versus cessation. Uh, somebody mentioned gender roles in church ministry. You discover a Christian who differs from you on these things. And I believe all four of those issues, there are clear biblical answers um, but you meet someone who's wrong, let's just say. How do you view that person? Honestly, how, what is your opinion of that as a human being, as a Christian? Do you go, Meh, you're, you know, you, you, you knock them down a couple pegs as a Christian, like, oh, you're that kind of Christian. Um, do we despise them? Do we, do we think they're inferior? Do we think we have nothing to learn from them? That their opinion or their, um, just their, what they're thinking doesn't matter at all? Um, do we, we, we might have a reflexive reaction of despising that person who is an image bearer of God. And, and again, I'm assuming for the sake of this example that this is a fellow member of the universal body of Christ. Um, so we should see this person as a brother or sister. Now, it can be hard to know. Sometimes these issues can be so significant that we go, are you even a Christian? Those issues I just said, none of those issues should cause us to think someone's not a Christian on the basis of disagreement on that issue. But there are some bigger issues. It's like, I don't even know if you're really Christian if you believe that. And, and that can be tricky to discern. But still, the point being, we can have this view of like, oh, you're, a, you're that kind of Christian. Like, you're that kind of being. And we, we peg them a, a couple of rungs lower than ourselves. Um, another sub-variety of this, this kind of judgmentalism is a critical spirit toward others. So not just the isolated incident of having a judgmental view of others, people's sins or errors. But this, this is sort of like a habit where we're sort of, this is our glasses. We go about life like constantly looking for faults. Maybe some, maybe everybody. We're just that person's always like nitpicking everybody. Or somebody like particularly our family, those in our home, people we have like higher expectations for. Maybe there can be some of that. But there's this sort of like, I'm looking for problems. I'm looking for things to disagree with. I'm looking for things to, to look down on you for. And you know what? You're going to find a lot. If you're looking, you're going to find a lot. And so you're constantly kind of nursing these, like, you're just a bad person. You know, like, uh, look at this thing you did again. And, and so that critical spirit can just be this pervasive habit of that kind of judgmentalism, where, again, it, and not to deny the person's really sinning or an error, but it, it, it causes you to have this heart of, like, I'm looking for everything. I'm despising you for it. I've decided that I'm better than you. So with this issue of judgment that's sinful in its manner, what, again— What's the problem related to godliness? What's the problem here relative to who God is? What are we missing when we're sinning this way? I don't understand the question. Okay. Um, how, am I, how am I misunderstanding or neglecting God when I'm sinning in that way? If I'm looking, I'm looking down on other Christians because of their sins or errors, thinking I'm better. Yeah. Is it is it humility? Lack yeah. Of humility? So humility, and which is a huge topic biblically, but there's so much that goes into uh, Paul humility. I think of. Can someone read First Corinthians four seven? Um, Paul is addressing a very factious. Paul, you got that? Yeah. Paul the apostle, not you, is addressing a very factious, arrogant church in Corinth, and they're picking their favorite teachers. Uh, to get behind, I'm the, I'm the I'm the team so and so, you know, Paul, Paul Apollos, which is uh, not, uh, which is very much an issue in our day, um, and he's attacking that arrogance that causes them to divide into factions. So this is what he says in First Corinthians four seven. 
For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So it's interesting. Who regards you as superior or better? And then, which is like, why do you think your your team is better than the other team, or you as individually? And then the the antidote to that is the question of, what do you have that you did not receive? Which is a, a, a humbling question, right? Everything that what's the what's the implied answer? That's a rhetorical question. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. So in this context, he's talking about your understanding, probably. Like he's talking about, I like this teacher versus that teacher. He's saying, okay, let's say you know some things that another Christian doesn't know. Is that because you are smart enough to pick Apollos rather than Cephas? You know, No. Everything you have, your understanding, any degree of maturity or spirituality that you have, it's a gift. It's grace. Which totally deflates and kills that, that, that factious arrogance that they're dealing with in Corinth. And that's the same thing for you as you go... Let's say I do know something this person doesn't know, doctrinally. Well, why do I? God was gracious to show me through his word. And I don't, it doesn't make me a better person. God, I don't have anything I didn't receive as grace. Yeah, Michelle. Yeah, I was just as kind of picking back up that humility, like, and this verse, I've received everything by mm-hmm. God. But also just to spin off that in his good timing. Mm-hmm. in his good sovereign will as we grow with one another in the body and as we you know some of us have different weaknesses mm-hmm. and strengths and all those things trusting in God's good timing to do his work among us Yeah. not that we shouldn't have those conversations and be talking with one another but really trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict yeah. and work very good Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 that yeah. was it. That's absolutely right. It's just trusting the Lord's sovereign timing and grace at work in the, in the saints and just going, God has taken a long time and a lot of patience to get me to where I am, and he's got a lot more to go. <laughs> and so just viewing people, we're all in various places with various issues on that, on that journey. And so, yeah, it's just trusting the Lord's timing with people, absolutely. And it's back to the, it's, it's before the Lord that they stand or fall. It's not me. I'm not the sanctifier, but Christ is. Um, I think too regarding sin. Oh, Matt Boyd, yeah. I had a question uh-huh. so regarding that. Is like, if we think we know something that our brothers don't do, how much, how much should we press for them to know? Yeah, how much we should we press? And that's a great question that requires a lot of wisdom that takes into account the particulars of what's the nature of the issue, um, how clear biblically is it, how consequential is it, what kinds of um, like there could be air, ways people are thinking wrongly where it's very directly hurting them. Like I can see people making really poor choices because they have this view of guidance. Like they expect certain things for God to lead in certain ways that aren't biblical. And it's like, you're making, you're like shipwrecking your life because you're expecting a voice from heaven. You know, like there may be more urgency to, to correct that because it's really hurting that person. What's your relationship like? What's the level of trust that person has with you? Are they a member of the body? Like all these factors are going to weigh into the wisdom of how much do you press. We should be patient, but you know how, how proactive are we? Um, yeah, and just pr- praying for opportunities, praying for wisdom in each interaction. Yeah, Christine. And um, I really appreciate you handling. You know, you, I, I know I've told you that personally too. Like the, the just the depth that you go into these issues, the humility and grace mm-hmm. that you exhibit. I really, really struggle with leaders in churches and, and pastors, and I'm not talking about RCG here, I'm talking about other pastors mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who who um, come across arrogantly. Mm-hmm. To me, I hear it as arrogance and self-righteousness, especially if they're so dogmatic about like any doctrinal mm-hmm. issue where they are happy to point out the weaknesses and and um, you know in mockery of yeah. other yeah. doctrinal positions or issues of interpretation of the Bible. Um, amongst believers in the church, yeah, yeah. And to the point where I like I shut down. I can't hear them. I can't hear truth from them. Mm-hmm. And I and that's where I struggle. It's like okay, where where is it okay for me to just be like, oh, I I just can't hear truth from this person mm-hmm. versus like, okay, this is they, there still probably is a lot of truth and grace here, and this is still likely a brother in Christ yeah. that is teaching, but from a position where I I hear arrogance and self righteousness, and so I'm judgmental about everything they say. Yeah, and that's a good hard thing for you, and, and it's true. Like there, this is an issue for leaders and pastors that that we're certain. This is a very relevant issue for us. 
how do we address issues in our teaching and our preaching? What's the tone with which we do? And uh, yeah, I would say, um, and also again, it'll depend on factors like, like you just said, this isn't your own pastors, but that kind of factor will matter. Are these your own pastors? Are they? Are you in the same local church? Are they just other people out there that you're aware of? I mean. I would say we should all be striving to have a heart that's teachable and willing to discern things that are true. And we can maybe, we can be tempted to fight judgmentalism with judgmentalism and be like, oh yeah, you're too harsh toward those you disagree with. And then we we can apply this really harsh judgment in response. At the same time, you don't owe anybody influence over you, right? You don't, talking about outside teachers, just people you're aware of, you don't owe anybody influence over you. So you don't have to go out and put yourself in the way of what they're saying, but just trying to guard your heart against a, a hardness of, that's like also counter-judgmentalism, I would say, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, just real quick, too, I want to uh, refer to, probably a lot of us know about it, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And really the whole issue, right, you know, this servant owed a gazillion dollars to the king. He couldn't pay it. King said, I forgive it. Servant goes off, and he's very harsh toward another servant who owes a much less significant, but much less debt. And the moral of the story is, those who have been forgiven a great debt, how on earth could you then turn around and be stingy against the debts of others against you? Everyone who's received the grace of God we heard about earlier in Christ, all of our sins cleansed in the blood of Christ, how could we then have a stingy heart that doesn't want to give grace and kindness toward others in their sin? And that's really one of the antidotes to this this issue too is like looking down and being so critical and being so um, dismissive of another person because of certain sins that we just don't like or they bug us or we can't understand how could someone do that but just to go remember how much God has forgiven me in Christ that is just if that's if that truth is just constantly like simmering in our hearts it's going to guard against a lot of this it's going to just give us a softer heart toward others in their own sin um and uh, another couple of texts, Ephesians 4.32, talking about, um, you know, as God has forgiven you in Christ, so forgive others, talking about having a tender heart toward each other. There's, there's plenty of texts of scripture that deal with that. So before we move on to sins of the tongue, any thoughts, any further? Yeah, Chin Wei, do you have something you want to say? Yeah. How does this change when the person we're interacting with is not a believer? Yeah. Is that judgmental disposition is still the same. Obviously, their master, we can say that they have a same master in some ways, right? They don't have, they don't come back right. 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 So how does that work, work out? Yeah, I would say for both kind, for the non-believer, I would say with somewhat slight modifications, it's still the principle is still true. That non-believer, even though they don't belong to Christ in the sense of they haven't bowed the knee to his lordship, they are still accountable to Christ and not to me for their sin. And so there should still be a sense of your you know, if I'm going to be able to address a non-believer over this, and I sure better be doing it over what Christ is going to judge them for and not for some petty thing that I don't like about their life. What a waste to confront somebody over something that's not like the, really the, the substance of their sin, right? Um, and then the second kind of judgmentalism, yeah. I, you know, again, God's word isn't calling us to be unrealistic about the way things are. So if you see somebody doing evil, God's word isn't telling us to pretend that's not evil. But it's just a matter of, do we look at that person and go, like, I'm better than you. How could you possibly do that? Or it's still a heart of, like, there's a lot of wisdom in, well, but there, but by the grace of God go I. Like, I'm, I'm made of the same stuff. I, have, I, had, I was born in sin as well. What do I have that I didn't receive? You know, I, the only reason I'm not lost and hardened in sin is because of grace. So that's still going to give us a softness toward that person. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, Paul. Seven a while ago, one through five about the plank. Now, yeah. is that is that including or does that encompass when you're confronting a believer, but you have sin in your own life that you need to clean up? Not the same type of sin, yeah. something totally different. Do you need to clean that up before you even approach anybody that that is in known sin or that you believe is in known sin? I, How does yeah. that work? What's the plank in Matthew 7? Um, yeah, I, I think it's probably could be any kind of... The, the function it houses, it inhibits your view of the other person. And I would say any, any, any like major sin in our lives, including potentially judgmentalism in that moment, can cloud our view and inhibit our ability to, to help that person. And I would say, yeah, really any sin could do that. But should you approach somebody 
if you have stuff in your own life you need to clean up, do you? Well, the cleanup, I don't think the cleanup is you, you're sinless. Because you, you could take that so far that you're like, I can't confront anybody until I'm, per- I'm perfect. Well, wait till glorification, right? But I think the issue would be repentance. You're, you're, you're fighting your sin. You're soft-hearted toward your sin. You're grieving your sin. That attitude, and there's nothing you're harboring and, and holding on to and, and kind of resisting the, Lord, the Lord's cleansing work in your life. That's the difference. It's not perfectionism, yeah. Yeah, Gary's got the last word before you go into sins of the... You got, uh, you know I, what, you, I talk too much. Oh, no, you're fine, Gary. <laughs> I think you all don't want to get to sins of the tongue because you know it's going to So we're stalling. No, I'm just kidding, Gary. Go ahead. Well, okay, then. Something that has really come to me in, in my reading and that I think where the Scripture helps us with this particular problem, if we, if we read and, hey, look what it says here, but... In Colossians, you know, chapter 3, and verses 12 through 17 have really mm-hmm. been a big thing to me. But, uh, you know, it says that we've been chosen of God, and then it says holy and beloved. So uh, I guess it's calling us holy and beloved. Mm-hmm. That's a big responsibility to think that I'm supposed to be holy and beloved. I've been chosen of God. Mm-hmm. And I, whoa, that puts, that puts a burden on me if I really think about it. But then it says put on a heart of compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Some of the words we've been talking mm-hmm. about here. So here it is in the scripture. So we're, 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 we're kind of reciting the scripture. But then it also says bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So now here we've mm-hmm. got kind of a word of God. Say, hey, yeah. bear with one another. Mm-hmm. So sometimes maybe... We have to bear with it. We have to internalize this action of bearing. Yeah. Maybe I don't agree with some things, but I, God tells me I've got to bear with you. And as God has forgiven me, mm-hmm. i got to do the same thing for you. And yeah. that's a powerful commandment in my mind. Yeah. This, is, this speaks to me quite strongly that, okay, yeah. I have a responsibility. And then when you think, it says that... Uh, and beyond all these things, put on love. And what is love? The perfect bond of unity. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, wow, <coughs> I need to strive for those kind of things. And so if I work on myself more mm-hmm. than working on others, maybe that, that would help yeah. in a lot of these issues as That's well. So sorry for so no, long. Such a good word. Was that Colossians 3, 12 to 17? Yeah. Said? Uh-huh. Yeah, that would just, if you struggle with, finding yourself struggling with this sin, that's a place to camp out, pray, meditate. But that picture of bearing with is a, it's an important gear in all this. And that's not a resentful bearing with, just bottling up resentment. That's, of course, not what that means. It's a love covering a multitude of sins kind of thing. You don't always say something. There's a lot of just patience, endurance, bearing with one another. Yeah. Uh, moving on to sins of the tongue. Um, we're, we're aware probably of many of us of certain texts of Scripture that warn us about the danger of, of how we use our tongue. Uh, our, our speech, our words are very powerful and very liable to, this is an area where we're very vulnerable to sin that can be very damaging. So I'll read James 3, verses 1 through the, the beginning of verse 5. Uh, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Meaning kind of like you can get everything else under control and your tongue is still going to be a, a vulnerable place. Like if there's any one area in your life you're not perfect yet, it's your speech. That's kind of what he's saying. Um, able, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And Jesus warns us in Matthew 12, 36, that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, uh, which we are accountable to God for our words. Now, I just want to remind you as you read that verse, remember, we are justified by grace alone through faith. So the gospel is not got the window when you hear this. But the point is, our words, every single word we say will be part of kind of sort of the, 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 charge, the, the, the charge sheet against us, uh, which is why we need to be justified by grace in Christ uh, through faith alone. Uh, because we all know we've, we've given many careless words, many harmful words, many impure words, and still struggle with that. 
Uh, so our tongue is a huge liability for sin and folly, and uh, we are accountable to God for how we use it. Um, one text I'll have you all turn to just to kind of be our um, place we, we kind of base what we're going to look at here on is Ephesians 4.29. This is a really key text for the use of our speech, our tongue. And it's one of these, it's, it's in a context where Paul is doing this put off, put on thing. This is his ethical teaching in Christ. Uh, given who we are in Christ, given what he's done for us, put off this pattern of thoughts and behaviors and put on this pattern in its place. And that's what he's doing in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And um, we may think about corrupting talk. You might first think about profanity, just bad words. Like, what's corrupting talk? Well, well there's certain kind of foul language that certainly would, would apply there. But it's broader. It's anything that you can see by the parallel the contrast is with things that are good for building up. Corrupting the idea is it tears down, it, it, it damages. It just in any way, it damages others. Um, so this, this verse really, really implies to us some helpful tools to ask ourselves. We were thinking about what to say. Namely, does this, is this going to help build somebody up or is it going to cut them down? Is it going to help them or is it going to hurt them? It's going to give grace, which means be helpful. That doesn't mean it's always what they want to hear. doesn't mean it's always uh, going to be met by their approval. Grace doesn't always do that. <laughs> but grace is objectively helpful, and it, it is meant to benefit and bless. And that should always be, that's the test. Those of us in Christ, the test for our words. Um, God's speech is, we hear, we hear in Psalm twelve six. the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the earth, purified seven times. We hear in Proverbs 15:4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. We hear tree of life in the Bible. What do you what do you think of? This is intentional, by the way. This is the author means this. What do you think of when you hear tree of life? The Garden of Eden, the tree that yeah, it was like a source of life, and then we got cut off from it. Well, the, the idea is God's words are true, they're pure, and all gentle and wise words are kind of like God's words in that they are. Uh, there's this picture of just I, ideal. Uh, relationships and flourishing and that gentle and good words can help bring this about whereas to the contrast perverse words break that break the spirit they hurt people you think of john one where jesus the where the eternal son is called the word of god he's the expression of the character of god eternally and when jesus comes he his very being and his words and his, his actions are are god's communication to us of life-giving words he's like the tree of life gentle constructive, gracious speech of God. And so just thinking about when God speaks, he's speaking to, to be, I mean, there's judgment, but God speaks to do good. God speaks to be constructive and grace-giving. And that should be true of our words as well, those of us who have received Christ and God's grace in him. Um, and that's why God cares so much about how we talk, we who are the first fruits of his new creation in Christ. Um, so there's various forms of corrupting speech. Uh, one of them is gossip, and this could be defined as spreading unfavorable information about somebody else, even if it's true. So gossip doesn't have to be uh, spurious rumors. It could be true things. Um, and what is gossip doing in our hearts? It's usually appealing to our pride. When we share gossip, we like to do that. We like to hear it and say it because it gives us a basis for comparison and feeling superior to other persons. Like, can you believe what a bad Dude, he is because he did this. And then we're like, in our heart, we're like, glad I'm not like that. You know, That's kind of what we're doing, isn't it? That's why it's so, it's so appealing. It's, it's, um, it's, it goes down like candy or like honey, I think the Proverbs say. Um, and so, again, the, the Ephesians 429 question is, as we're thinking about sharing something, the question to ask is, is this going to help the person? Is this going to be helpful to the person I'm talking to and about? Or is this just a basis for tearing down or maybe for elevating myself? Now, there are times to share unflattering information about somebody else. Uh, there are times, again, the question is, is it helpful? Is it constructive for their good in Christ? So in the, if you read in Matthew 18, the church discipline confrontation uh, passage where it talks about there are times sometimes to gradually and in a very regulated way uh, increase the exposure to somebody's sin if they're showing themselves non-repentant. The purpose for that is redemptive. 
The purpose of that is to rescue that person. And so there are times, or, or if someone's being abused, it's not gossip to share that with somebody else for the sake of there being a restoration and repentance and wholeness. So it doesn't mean don't ever say anything about anyone else's sin. But the question is, what's the motive um, for doing so? Is it, is it 429, Ephesians 4.29, is it for building up and helping? Or is it for cutting down? Thoughts on that? I know I'm, I'm blazing fast here. Any thoughts or questions? Push back. Um, we'll go kind of quick through some of these categories. Slander is false statements about others that are meant to defame or harm their reputation. It's a category of lies that's meant to damage someone's reputation. Um, respectable sins, respectable versions of this might be misrepresenting somebody else in our talking about them. Misrepresenting their sin, like making it sound like a bigger deal than it is. Um, as we describe one person's sin to another person or describing even a situation or event that happened in a way that's kind of spins it to make the person look worse than they really are. Um, and so that we, we have to be very watchful about that. Are we, are we damaging another's reputation unnecessarily? Just lies in general, more broadly than slanders, any, any untrue statement, um, either straight up false or there could be exaggerations that mislead or partial truth that distort. So we're, whenever we tell anything, we're always telling a partial truth, right? Like you're always editorializing and what details do I share about what event or whatever. We're always being selective, but it becomes deceptive when we are selective in a way that distorts the picture. Um, there's a difference between a lower resolution picture and a distorted, like a, a, a different picture, right? So think about it as like, well, we might have to decrease the resolution on, on, on our description of what happened, but are we giving a faithful representation that's meant to give a, a, right, a right picture in someone's mind? So there can be real sneaky, respectable sins where we just exaggerate one side of things. We just spin it a little bit to give a little bit of a different uh, impression to somebody um, or leave out certain key details that might not make us look very good, etc. So anything like that. God's words are pure and entirely truthful and reliable, and so should ours be. Critical speech. These are negative comments about somebody that may be true, but they just don't need to be said. Unnecessary negative speech about or towards someone. And again, this is Ephesians 4.29. As those who are the new creation in Christ, we ask, is what I'm about to say kind? Is it necessary? Does it need to be said? Is it helpful? Um, finally, I think Bridges brings up sarcasm and ridicule as sins of the tongue because of how they cut down others and i agree that they can be i wonder maybe just i know we don't have a ton of time but any thoughts on are sarcasm and ridicule ever not sinful could they ever pass the ephesians 429 test and give grace yeah david certainly the prophets in the old testament use sarcasm and ridicule yeah yeah you read the prophets they do i I think of um Elijah on the mountain with Baal, and he's like, maybe Baal is going to the bathroom. Maybe you should, you know, speak up a little loud. I mean, that's pure sarcasm and ridicule, right? But why is that? I assume he's not sitting there. There's that, you see that model of the prophet. Why is that helpful? Or why, why, that, why might that pass the Ephesians 429 test? Elijah, the whole point is not to, is not to, like, derision on like the people mm-hmm. the whole point is to illustrate the truth <clears throat> right Paul has no power he's, mm-hmm. he's not real at all so it's just like really illustrating the truth not yeah. just to keep scorn on the people true so the target isn't the people it's the errors that are entrapping the people that's a, I think a really key distinction Jeff yeah, it's, um, it's the motive yeah. being that he's ultimately trying to glorify God is the ultimate Mm-hmm. Uh, thing because God's yet to uh, bring down the yeah. water. Yeah, the real flame from heaven. To, right. So the motive: Are we glorifying God? Are we trying to? Are we trying to elevate ourselves with this ridicule? Are we trying to hurt a person? I think that's totally it. Is godly ridicule? There is a place for it. I think we have to be very careful about our hearts. Godly ridicule and sarcasm that's meant to expose the truly ridiculous nature of, of ridiculous and foolish ideas that are hurting and trapping people. There can be a place in the interest of helping rescue somebody, of just exposing that. But again, the, 
Uh, and we may have, our opinions may differ on the, the, what that might look like in various contexts. But again, the heart issue is, am I, doing, am I trying to build somebody up? Am I trying to help them rescue them? Or am I just getting satisfaction in attacking that person? Um, that's a key issue. Um, so ultimately, yeah, it's just some helpful examples of how Ephesians 4.29 could help provide a test for all sorts of different kinds of speech. Um, finally, I just want to consider, how do, we, how do we fight for godly words? Um, Ephesians 4.29 is a helpful verse, of course, and points us toward a way of fighting that's very, I guess we could say it's sort of the mouth, the mouth filter technique, which is right, like, even what I've been presenting is like asking yourself the question, should I say this thing, <laughs> you know, um, and then saying it or not saying it, which is good. That's important, the sort of the dam or filter of the mouth. But um, because no matter what, you know, we, it's worth, uh, not every thought that occurs to us is a good thing to say, okay? That will always be the case. But Jesus, on the other hand, teaches us that where do, our, the, where do the, the words that we want to say come from? Our heart. So there's an upstream headwaters, right? Matthew 12, 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's like saying to us, watch out. You don't just, if all you've got, your only, your only weapon here is the mouth filter. It's like there's a much more fundamental problem, which is your heart is producing a certain kind of stream. And that's, that's going to, that basically your words are going are gonna to reflect that one way or another. So another important level for fighting is, it's the heart that generates the, the, the words that, we might, that might occur to us to say, whether we decide to do so or not. So if you, are, if you have that critical, let's back to having that critical spirit against someone, and you're constantly stewing on, on their failures and what a terrible sinner they are and how much better you are than them, but then you're trying to apply Ephesians 4.29 and you're like biting your tongue constantly, like, I can't say that, I can't say that, I can't say that. There's something wrong there. Yeah, I mean, it is good to fight at the level of biting the tongue, right? But the, the, there's something more fundamental of, I have a critical spirit that's spewing out these polluted waters of harshness and judgmentalism. So a godly solution is you fight that at both levels. They're not mutually exclusive. We fight it, but we, we address the heart issues. Again, the same things of godliness. Where does God fit into this? And, and how does the gospel inform how I view this person or whatever. And then we also are applying that mouth filter of, does this help this person? Uh, I love um, Psalm nineteen fourteen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, those two things are actually closely intertwined, and I want them both to be acceptable and beautiful in, in the Lord's sight as his spirit is working in me. So... Um, for the sake of time, that w- that's about it for what we have. We, we looked at the sins of judgmentalism, both the content of judgment, the manner of judgment, and uh, we looked at these sins of the tongue and how both, they all come back to the matter of the heart. What's our heart doing before God relative to him and others? And uh, hope it's been helpful. I'm going to close this in prayer. God, we thank you for Christ, the perfect expression of your life-giving words and, and the one who is your very word eternally. And we thank you for his wisdom. We thank you for his example. And we thank you for his cross that is, uh, that is paid for our sins and the power of this, the spirit that he's given to renew us. We pray you'd work on our hearts in all of these ways to make us more like your son, to root out sins of judgmentalism and uh, sins in how we use our words. May our words be pure and life-giving like yours are. Uh, we thank you for this time and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.